Book One, Part Two of A Confederate Girl's Diary. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Confederate Girl's Diary by Sarah Morgan Dawson. Book One, Part Two, April twenty sixth to May twenty seventh, eighteen sixty two. April twenty sixth, eighteen sixty two. There is no word in the English language that can express the state in which we are and have been these last three days. Day before yesterday, news came early in the morning of three of the enemy's gunboats passing the forts, and then the excitement began. It increased rapidly on hearing of the sinking of eight of our gunboats in the engagement, the capture of the forts, and last night of the burning of the wharves and cotton in the city while the Yankees were taking possession. Today the excitement has reached the point of delirium. I believe I am one of the most self-possessed in my small circle, and yet I feel such a craving for news of Miriam and Mother and Jimmy who are in the city that I suppose I am as wild as the rest. It is nonsense to tell me I am cool with all these patriotic and enthusiastic sentiments. Nothing can be positively ascertained, save that our gunboats are sunk and theirs are coming up to the city. Everything else has been contradicted until we really do not know whether the city has been taken or not. We only know we had best be prepared for anything. So day before yesterday, Lily and I sewed up our jewelry, which may be of use if we have to fly. I vow I will not move one step unless carried away. Come what will, here I remain. We went this morning to see the cotton burning, a sight never before witnessed and probably never again to be seen. Wagons, drays, everything that can be driven or rolled, were loaded with the bales and taken a few squares back to burn on the commons. Negroes were running around, cutting them open, piling them up, and setting them afire. All were as busy as though their salvation depended on disappointing the Yankees. Later, Charlie sent for us to come to the river and see him fire a flatboat loaded with the precious material for which the Yankees are risking their bodies and souls. Up and down the levee, as far as we could see, Negroes were rolling it down to the brink of the river, where they would set them afire and push the bales in to float burning down the tide. Each sent up its wreath of smoke and looked like a tiny steamer puffing away. Only I doubt that from the source to the mouth of the river there are as many boats afloat on the Mississippi. The flatboat was piled with as many bales as it could hold without sinking. Most of them were cut open, while Negroes staved in the heads of barrels of alcohol, whiskey, etc., and dashed buckets full over the cotton. Others built up little chimneys of pine every few feet, lined with pine knots and loose cotton, to burn more quickly. There, piled the length of the whole levee, or burning in the river, lay the work of thousands of Negroes for more than a year past. It had come from every side. Men stood by who owned the cotton that was burning or waiting to burn. They either helped or looked on cheerfully. Charlie owned but sixteen bales, a matter of some fifteen hundred dollars, but he was the head man of the whole affair and burned his own as well as the property of others. 
a single barrel of whiskey that was thrown on the cotton cost the man who gave it one hundred and twenty-five dollars. It shows what a nation in earnest is capable of doing. Only two men got on the flatboat with Charlie when it was ready. It was towed to the middle of the river, set afire in every place, and then they jumped into a little skiff fastened in front and rowed to land. The cotton floated down the Mississippi, one sheet of living flame, even in the sunlight. It would have been grand at night. But then we will have fun watching it this evening anyway, for they cannot get through today, though no time is to be lost. Hundreds of bales remained untouched. An incredible amount of property has been destroyed today, but no one begrudges it. Every grog shop has been emptied, and gutters and pavements are floating with liquors of all kinds, so that if the Yankees are fond of strong drink, they will fare ill. Yesterday, Mr. Hutchinson and a Dr. Moffat called to ask for me with a message about Jimmy. I was absent, but they saw Lily. Jimmy, they said, was safe. Though sick in bed, he had sprung up and had rushed to the wharf at the first tap of the alarm bell in New Orleans. But as nothing could be done, he would probably be with us today, bringing Mother and Miriam. I have neither heard nor seen more. The McRae, they said, went to the bottom with the others. They did not know whether anyone aboard had escaped. God be praised that Jimmy was not on her then. The new boat to which he was appointed is not yet finished, so he is saved. I am distressed about Captain Huger, and could not refrain from crying, he was so good to Jimmy. But I remembered Miss Cammack might think it rather tender and obtrusive, so I dried my eyes and began to hope he had escaped. Oh, how glad I should be to know he has suffered no harm! Mr. Hutchinson was on his way above, going to join others where the final battle is to be fought on the Mississippi. He had not even time to sit down, so I was doubly grateful to him for his kindness. I wish I could have thanked him for being so considerate of me in my distress now. In her agitation, Lily gave him a letter I had been writing to George when I was called away, and begged him to address it and mail it at Vicksburg or somewhere, for no mail will leave here for Norfolk for a long while to come. The odd part is that he does not know George, but he said he would gladly take charge of it and remember the address, which Lily told him was Richmond. Well, if the Yankees get it, they will take it for an insane scrawl. I wanted to calm his anxiety about us, though I was so wildly excited that I could only say, Don't mind us, we are safe, but fight, George, fight for us. The repetition was ludicrous. I meant so much, too. I only wanted him to understand he could best defend us there. Ah, Mr. Yankee, if you had but your brothers in this world, and their lives hanging by a thread, you too might write wild letters. And if you want to know what an excited girl can do, just call and let me show you the use of a small seven-shooter and a large carving-knife which vibrate between my belt and my pocket, always ready for emergencies. April 27th. What a day! Last night came a dispatch that New Orleans was under British protection and could not be bombarded. Consequently, the enemy's gunboats would probably be here this morning, such few as had succeeded in passing the forts, from nine to fifteen, it was said. 
and the forts, they said, had not surrendered. I went to church, but I grew very anxious before it was over, feeling that I was needed at home. When I returned, I found Lily wild with excitement, picking up hastily whatever came to hand, preparing for instant flight she knew not where. The Yankees were in sight, the town was to be burned, we were to run to the woods, etc. If the house had to be burned, I had to make up my mind to run, too. So my treasure-bag tied around my waist as a bustle, a sack with a few necessary articles hanging on my arm, some few quite unnecessary ones, too, as I had not the heart to leave the old and new prayer-books father had given me, and Miriam's, too, pistol and carving-knife ready, I stood awaiting the exodus. I heaped on the bed the treasures I wanted to burn, matches lying ready to fire the hole at the last minute. I may here say that, when all was over, I found I had omitted many things from the Holocaust. This very diary was not included. It would have afforded vast amusement to the Yankees. There may yet be occasion to burn them, and the house also. People fortunately changed their minds about the auto de fe just then, and the Yankees have not yet arrived at sundown. So when the excitement calmed down, poor Lily tumbled in bed in a high fever in consequence of terror and exertion. A page torn out. I was right in that prophecy, for this was not the Will Pinckney I saw last. So woe-begone, so subdued, careworn, and sad, no trace of his once merry self. He is good-looking, which he never was before, but I would rather never have seen him than have found him so changed. I was talking to a ghost. His was a sad story. He had held one bank of the river until forced to retreat with his men, as their cartridges were exhausted and General Lovell omitted sending more. They had to pass through swamps, wading seven and a half miles up to their waists in water. He gained the edge of the swamp, saw they were over the worst, and fell senseless. Two of his men brought him milk and woke him up, he said. His men fell from exhaustion, were lost, and died in the swamp, so that out of five hundred but one hundred escaped. This he told quietly and sadly, looking so heartbroken that it was piteous to see such pain. He showed me his feet, with thick clumsy shoes which an old negro had pulled off to give him, for his were lost in the swamp, and he came out barefooted. They reached the La Fourche River, I believe, seized a boat, and arrived here last night. His wife and child were aboard. Heaven knows how they got there. The men he sent on to Port Hudson, while he stopped here. I wanted to bring his wife to stay with us, but he said she could not bear to be seen, as she had run off just as she had happened to be at that moment. In half an hour he would be off to take her to his old home in a carriage. There he would rejoin his men on the railroad, and march from Clinton to the Jackson Road, and so on to Corinth a long journey for men so disheartened, but they will conquer in the end. Beauregard's army will increase rapidly at this rate. The whole country is aroused, and every man who owns a gun, and many who do not, are on the road to Corinth. We will conquer yet. May 5th. 
Vile old Yankee boats, four in number, passed up this morning without stopping. After all our excitement, this silent contempt annihilated me. What in the world do they mean? The river was covered with burning cotton. Perhaps they wanted to see where it came from. May 9th. Our lawful, question mark, owners have at last arrived. About sunset, day before yesterday, the Iroquois anchored here, and a graceful young Federal stepped ashore, carrying a Yankee flag over his shoulder, and asked the way to the mayor's office. I like the style. If we girls of Baton Rouge had been at the landing instead of the men, that Yankee would never have insulted us by flying his flag in our faces. We would have opposed his landing except under a flag of truce. But the men let him alone, and he even found a poor Dutchman willing to show him the road. He did not accomplish much, said a formal demand would be made next day, and asked if it was safe for the men to come ashore and buy a few necessaries, when he was assured the air of Baton Rouge was very unhealthy for Yankee soldiers at night. He promised very magnanimously not to shell us out if we did not molest him, but I notice none of them dare set their feet on terra firma except the officer who has now called three times on the mayor, and who is said to tremble visibly as he walks the streets. Last evening came the demand. The town must be surrendered immediately. The federal flag must be raised, and they would grant us the same terms they granted New Orleans. Jolly terms those were. The answer was worthy of a southerner. It was. The town was defenseless. If we had cannon, there were not men enough to resist. But if forty vessels lay at the landing, it was intimated we were in their power and more ships coming up, we would not surrender. If they wanted, they might come and take us. If they wished the federal flag hoisted over the arsenal, they might put it up for themselves. The town had no control over government property. Glorious! What a pity they did not shell the town! But they are taking us at our word, and this morning they are landing at the garrison. All devices, signs, and flags of the Confederacy shall be suppressed, so says Picayune Butler. Good! I devote all my red, white, and blue silk to the manufacture of Confederate flags. As soon as one is confiscated, I make another, until my ribbon is exhausted, when I will sport a duster emblazoned in high colors, hurrah for the bonny blue flag. Henceforth I wear one pinned to my bosom, not a duster, but a little flag, and the man who says take it off will have to pull it off for himself. The man who dares attempt it, well, a pistol in my pocket fills up the gap. I am capable, too. This is a dreadful war to make even the hearts of women so bitter. I hardly know myself these last few weeks. I, who have such a horror of bloodshed, consider even killing in self-defense murder, who cannot wish them the slightest evil, whose only prayer is to have them sent back in peace to their own country, I talk of killing them. For what else do I wear a pistol and carving knife? I'm afraid I will try them on the first one who says an insolent word to me. Yes, and repent it forever after in sackcloth and ashes. Oh, if only I was a man! Then I could don the breeches and slay them with a will. 
If some few southern women were in the ranks, they could set the men an example they would not blush to follow. Pshaw! There are no women here. We are all men. May 10th. Last night, about one o'clock, I was awakened and told that Mother and Miriam had come. Oh, how glad I was! I tumbled out of bed half asleep and hugged Miriam in a dream, but waked up when I got to Mother. They came up under a flag of truce on a boat going up for provisions, which, by the way, was brought to by half a dozen Yankee ships in succession, with a threat to send a broadside into her if she did not stop. The wretches knew it must be under a flag of truce. No boats leave except by special order to procure provisions. What tales they had to tell! They were on the wharf and saw the ships sail up the river, saw the broadside fired into Will Pinckney's regiment, the boats we fired, our gunboats floating down to meet them all wrapped in flames, twenty thousand bales of cotton blazing in a single pile, molasses and sugar thrown over everything. They stood there opposite to where one of the ships landed, expecting a broadside, and resolute not to be shot in the back. I wish I had been there. And Captain Huger is not dead. They had hopes of his life for the first time day before yesterday. Miriam saw the ball that had just been extracted. He will probably be lame for the rest of his life. It will be a glory to him. For even the Federal officers say that never did they see so gallant a little ship, or one that fought so desperately as the McRae. Men and officers fought like devils. Think of all those great leviathons after the poor little widow Mickey. One came tearing down on her sideways, while the Brooklyn fired on her from the other side, when brave Captain Worley put the nose of the Manassas under the first, and tilted her over so that the whole broadside passed over instead of through the McRae, who spit back its poor little fire at both and after all was lost she carried the wounded and the prisoners to new orleans and was scuttled by her own men in port glorious captain huger and think of his sending word to jimmy suffering as he was that his little brass cannon was game to the last oh i hope he will recover brave daredevil captain worley is prisoner and on the way to fort warren that home of all brave patriotic men We'll have him out. And my poor little Jimmy, if I have not spoken of him, it is not because I have lost sight of him for a moment. The day the McRae went down, he arose from his bed, ill as he was, and determined to rejoin her, as his own boat, the Mississippi, was not ready. When he reached the St. Charles, he fell so very ill that he had to be carried back to Brother's. Only his desperate illness saved him from being among the killed or wounded on that gallant little ship. A few days after he learned the fate of the ship, and was told that Captain Huger was dead. No wonder he should cry so bitterly, for Captain Huger was as tender and as kind to him as his own dear father. God bless him for it. The enemy's ships were sailing up, so he threw a few articles in a carpet-bag and started off for Richmond, Corinth, anywhere to fight. Sick, weak, hardly able to stand, he went off, two weeks ago yesterday. We know not where, and we have never heard from him since. 
whether he succumbed to that jaundice and the rest, and lies dead or dying on the road, God only knows. We can only wait and pray God to send dear little Jimmy home in safety. And this is war. Heaven save me from like scenes and experiences again. I was wild with excitement last night when Miriam described how the soldiers, marching to the depot, waved their hats to the crowds of women and children, shouting, God bless you, ladies, we will fight for you. And they, waving their handkerchiefs, sobbed with one voice, God bless you, soldiers, fight for us. We, too, have been having our fun. Early in the evening, four more gunboats sailed up here. We saw them from the corner, three squares off, crowded with men, even up in the riggings. The American flag was flying from every peak. It was received in profound silence by the hundreds gathered on the banks. I could hardly refrain from a groan. Much as I once loved that flag, I hate it now. I came back and made myself a Confederate flag about five inches long, slipped the staff in my belt, pinned the flag to my shoulder, and walked downtown to the consternation of women and children who expected something awful to follow. An old negro cried, My young missus got her flag flyin' anyhow. Nettie made one and hid it in the folds of her dress. But we were the only two who ventured. We went to the State House Terrace and took a good look at the Brooklyn, which was crowded with people who took a good look at us likewise. The picket stationed at the garrison took alarm at half a dozen men on horseback and ran, saying that the citizens were attacking. The kind officers aboard the ship sent us word that if they were molested the town would be shelled. Let them. Butchers! Does it take thirty thousand men and millions of dollars to murder defenseless women and children? Oh, the great nation! Bravo! May 11th. I, I am disgusted with myself. No unusual thing, but I am peculiarly disgusted this time. Last evening I went to Mrs. Bruno's without an idea of going beyond, with my flag flying again. They were all going to the State House, so I went with them. To my great distress, some fifteen or twenty Federal officers were standing on the first terrace, stared at like wild beasts by the curious crowd. I had not expected to meet them, and felt a painful conviction that I was unnecessarily attracting attention by an unladylike display of defiance from the crowd gathered there. But what was I to do? I felt humiliated, conspicuous, everything that is painful and disagreeable. But strike my colors in the face of the enemy? Never. Nettie and Sophie had them, too, but that was no consolation for the shame I suffered by such a display so totally distasteful to me. How I wished myself away, and chafed at my folly, and hated myself for being there and everyone for seeing me. I hope it will be a lesson to me always to remember a lady can gain nothing by such a display. I was not ashamed of the flag of my country. I proved that by never attempting to remove it in spite of my mortification. But I was ashamed of my position, for these are evidently gentlemen, not the Billy Wilson's crew we were threatened with. Fine, noble-looking men they were, showing refinement and gentlemanly bearing in every motion. One cannot help but admire such foes. 
they set us an example worthy of our imitation, and one we would be benefited by following. They come as visitors, without either pretensions to superiority or the insolence of conquerors. They walk quietly their way, offering no annoyance to the citizens, though they themselves are stared at most unmercifully, and pursued by crowds of ragged little boys, while even men gape at them with open mouths. They prove themselves gentlemen, while many of our citizens have proved themselves boors, and I admire them for their conduct. With a conviction that I had allowed myself to be influenced by bigoted, narrow-minded people in believing them to be unworthy of respect or regard, I came home wonderfully changed in all my newly acquired sentiments, resolved never more to wound their feelings, who were so careful of ours, by such unnecessary display, and I hung my flag on the parlour mantel, there to wave, if it will, in the shades of private life, but to make a show, make me conspicuous and ill at ease as I was yesterday, never again. There was a dozen officers in church this morning, and the psalms for the eleventh day seemed so singularly appropriate to the feelings of the people that I felt uncomfortable for them. They answered with us, though. May 14th. I am beginning to believe that we are even of more importance in Baton Rouge than we thought we were. It is laughable to hear the things a certain set of people, who know they can't visit us, say about the whole family. When father was alive they dared not talk about us aloud beyond calling us the proud Morgans and the aristocracy of Baton Rouge. But now father is gone, the people imagine we are public property, to be criticized, vilified, and abused to their heart's content. And now, because they find absurdities don't succeed, they try improbabilities. So yesterday the town was in a ferment because it was reported the federal officers had called on the Miss Morgans, and all the gentlemen were anxious to hear how they had been received. One had the grace to say, if they did, they received the best lesson there that they could get in town. Those young ladies would meet them with the true southern spirit. The rest did not know. They would like to find out. I suppose the story originated from the fact that we were unwilling to blackguard, yes, that is the word, the federal officers here, and would not agree with many of our friends in saying they were liars, thieves, murderers, scoundrels, the scum of the earth, etc. Such epithets are unworthy of ladies, I say, and do harm, rather than advance our cause. Let them be what they will, it shall not make me less the lady." I say it is unworthy of anything except low newspaper war such abuse, and I will not join in. I have a brother-in-law in the Federal Army whom I love and respect as much as anyone in the world, and shall not readily agree that his being a northerner would give him an irresistible desire to pick my pockets and take from him all power of telling the truth. No, there are few men I admire more than Major Drum, and I honor him for his independence in doing what he believes right. Let us have liberty of speech and action in our land, I say, but not gross abuse and calumny. Shall I acknowledge that the people we so recently called our brothers are unworthy of consideration, and are liars, cowards, dogs? Not I. 
if they conquer us i acknowledge them as a superior race i will not say that we were conquered by cowards for where would that place us it will take a brave people to gain us and that the northerners undoubtedly are i would scorn to have an inferior foe i fight only my equals these women may acknowledge that cowards have won battles in which their brothers were engaged but i i will ever say mine fought against brave men and won the day which is most honourable i was never a secessionist for i quietly adopted father's views on political subjects without meddling with them but even father went over with his state and when so many outrages were committed by the fanatical leaders of the north though he regretted the union said fight to the death for our liberty i say so too i want to fight until we win the cause that so many have died for i don't believe in secession but i do in liberty i want the south to conquer dictate its own terms and go back to the union for i believe that apart inevitable ruin awaits both it is a rope of sand this confederacy founded on the doctrine of secession and will not last many years not five the north cannot subdue us we are too determined to be free they have no right to confiscate our property to pay debts they themselves have incurred death as a nation rather than union on such terms we will have our rights secured on so firm a basis that it can never be shaken if by power of overwhelming numbers they conquer us it will be a barren victory over a desolate land we the natives of this loved soil will be beggars in a foreign land we will not submit to despotism under the garb of liberty the north will find herself burdened with an unparalleled debt with nothing to show for it except deserted towns burning homes a standing army which will govern with no small caprice and an impoverished land if that be treason make the best of it may seventeenth one of these days when peace is restored and we are quietly settled in our allotted corners of this wide world without any particularly exciting event to alarm us and with the knowledge of what is now the future and will then be the dead past seeing that all has been for the best for us in the end that all has come right in spite of us we will wonder how we could ever have been foolish enough to await each hour in such breathless anxiety we will ask ourselves if it was really true that nightly as we lay down to sleep we did not dare plan for the morning feeling that we might be homeless and beggars before the dawn how unreal it will then seem we will say it was our wild imagination perhaps but how bitterly horribly true it is now four days ago the yankees left us to attack vicksburg leaving their flag flying in the garrison without a man to guard it and with the understanding that the town would be held responsible for it it was intended for a trap and it succeeded for night before last it was pulled down and torn to pieces now unless will will have the kindness to sink a dozen of their ships up there i hear he has command of the lower batteries they will be back in a few days and will execute their threat of shelling the town if they do what will become of us 
All we expect in the way of earthly property is as yet mere paper, which will be so much trash if the South is ruined, as it consists of debts due father by many planters for professional services rendered, who of course will be ruined too, so all money is gone. That is nothing. We will not be ashamed to earn our bread, so let it go. But this house is at least a shelter from the weather, all sentiment apart and our servants too how could they manage without us the yankees on the river and a band of guerrillas in the woods are equally anxious to precipitate a fight between the two fires what chance for us it would take only a little while to burn the city over our heads they say the women and children must be removed these guerrillas where please charlie says we must go to greenwell and have this house pillaged for butler has decreed that no unoccupied house shall be respected if we stay through the battle if the federals are victorious we will suffer for the officers here were reported to have said if the people here did not treat them decently they would know what it was when billy wilson's crew arrived they would give them a lesson that select crowd is now in new orleans heaven help us when they reach here it is in these small cities that the greatest outrages are perpetrated what are we to do a new proclamation from butler has just come it seems that the ladies have an ugly way of gathering their skirts when the federals pass to avoid any possible contact some even turn up their noses unladylike to say the least but it is maybe owing to the odor they have which is said to be unbearable even at this early season of the year butler says whereas the so-called ladies of new orleans insult his men and officers he gives one and all permission to insult any and all who so treat them then and there with the assurance that the women will not receive the slightest protection from the government and that the men will all be justified I did not have time to read it, but repeat it as it was told me by mother, who is in utter despair at the brutality of the thing. These men are brothers, not mine. Let us hope for the honor of their nation that Butler is not counted among the gentlemen of the land. And so, if any man should fancy he cared to kiss me, he could do so under the pretext that I had pulled my dress from under his feet." that will justify them and if we decline their visits they can insult us under the plea of a prior affront oh gibbs george jimmy never did we need your protection as sorely as now and not to know even whether you are alive when charlie joins the army we will be defenceless indeed come to my bosom o oh my discarded carving-knife laid aside under the impression that these men were gentlemen we will be close friends once more and if you must have a sheath perhaps i may find one for you in the heart of the first man who attempts to butlerize me i never dreamed of kissing any man save my father and brothers and why any one should care to kiss any one else i fail to understand and i do not propose to learn to make exceptions still no word from the boys we hear that norfolk has been evacuated but no details george was there gibbs is wherever johnston is presumably on the rappahannock but it is more than six weeks since we have heard from either of them and all communication is cut off 
May 21st. I have had such a search for shoes this week that I am disgusted with shopping. I am triumphant now, for after traversing the town in every direction and finding nothing, I finally discovered a pair of boots, just made for a little negro to go fishing with, and only an inch and a half too long for me, besides being unbendable. But I seized them with avidity, and the little negro would have been outbid if I had not soon after discovered a pair more seemly, if not more serviceable, which I took without further difficulty. Behold my tender feet cased in crocodile skin, patent leather tipped, low-quarter boys' shoes, number two. What a fall there was, my country, from my pretty English glove kid, to sabots made of some animal closely connected with the hippopotamus, a dernier ressort vraiment, for my choice was that, or cooling my feet on the burning pavement au naturel. I, who have such a terror of anyone seeing my naked foot. And this is thanks to war and blockade, not a decent shoe in the whole community. N'importe. Better days are coming. We'll all have shoes, after a while, perhaps. Why did not Mark Tapley leave me a song calculated to keep the spirits up under depressing circumstances? I need one very much, and have nothing more suggestive than the old Methodist hymn, Better days are coming, we'll all go right, which I shout so constantly as our prospects darken that it begins to sound stale. May 27th. The cry is, Ho for Greenwell! Very probably this day week we'll see us there. I don't want to go. If we were at peace and were to spend a few months of the warmest season out there, no one would be more eager and delighted than I. But to leave our comfortable home and all it contains, for a rough pine cottage seventeen miles away even from this scanty civilization, is sad. It must be. We are hourly expecting two regiments of Yankees to occupy the garrison, and some fifteen hundred of our men are awaiting them a little way off, so the fight seems inevitable. And we must go, leaving what little has already been spared us to the tender mercy of northern volunteers, who, from the specimen of plundering they gave us two weeks ago, will hardly leave us even the shelter of our roof. Oh, my dear home, how can I help but cry at leaving you forever? For if this fight occurs, never again shall I pass the threshold of this house, where we have been so happy and sad, the scene of joyous meetings and mournful partings, the place where we greeted each other with glad shouts after even so short a parting, the place where Harry and father kissed us good-bye and never came back again. I know what Lavinia has suffered this long year by what we have suffered these last six weeks. Poor Lavinia, so far away, how easier poverty, if it must come, would be if we could bear it together. I wonder if the real fate of the boys, if we ever hear, can be so dreadful as this suspense. Still no news of them. My poor little Jimmy! and think how desperate Gibbs and George will be when they read Butler's proclamation, and they not able to defend us. Gibbs was in our late victory of Fredericksburg, I know. In other days going to Greenwell was the signal for general noise and confusion. 
All the boys gathered their guns and fishing tackle and thousand and one amusements. Father sent out provisions. We helped Mother pack. Hal and I tumbled over the libraries to lay in a supply of reading material, and all was bustle until the carriage drove to the door at daylight one morning and swept us off. It is not so gay this time. I wandered around this morning selecting books alone. We can only take what is necessary, the rest being left to the care of the northern militia in general. I never knew before how many articles were perfectly indispensable to me. This or that little token or keepsake, piles of letters I hate to burn, many dresses, etc., I cannot take conveniently, lie around me, and I hardly know which to choose among them, yet half must be sacrificed. I can only take one trunk. End of Book One, Part Two